And Lord, please open your word to us now as we uh, study it together. Please would we fall more in love with our Savior, become more like him in that love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tomorrow is a gift that is promised to no one. When Jesus was here on earth, there was a last day to hear him teach. And in John chapter 12, we arrive at that last day. And I want to open straight there now, uh, page 899, John chapter 12. The last day of Jesus' public ministry. John chapter 12. And uh, when you find it, glance down at verse 44. It says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. John reports that Jesus cried out. And that is a very strong word. It's full of emotion. Uh, Jesus cries out like this only a few times in the Gospels. Once back at the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, when he cried out on the last and great day of the feast. Once again from the cross in Matthew 27, when he gave a loud cry and yielded up his spirit. And then again here in John 12. But really, that's about it. Jesus wasn't a wild-haired, shouting kind of prophet in general. Um, but I want us to hear this cry from Jesus sounding with great passion and urgency. As the sky darkens and the storm clouds gather and the wind whips up, a great cry is heard, like it's the last chance. And in some ways, this was the last chance. This great cry really marks the end of Jesus' public ministry in John's Gospel. If you flip over the page to chapter 13, you'll find that we're already at the foot washing of Maundy Thursday. All that remains in this Gospel is the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. The long conversation he had with his disciples at their last supper together, and then the long process of his being tried and crucified after which John describes the resurrection and some appearances to the disciples. But at this point, in chapter 12, the public ministry of Jesus is complete, and it ends with a loud cry. So I think this would be a good moment to ask, what was it all about? What did Jesus come to do in his public ministry? And any commentator of John's gospel is going to tell you the same thing. Probably any casual reader of his gospel will tell you the same thing as well, because John makes it pretty obvious. He can sum it up in a single word, believe. Believe, the Greek word pistuo. For those of you who like numbers, John uses the word believe 98 times in his gospel, which is almost three times as many as any other New Testament book. In fact, the whole New Testament uses the word pistuo 241 times, which means that for every five times the word appears in the Bible, John has two of them. It takes him seven verses to use it for the first time. In chapter 1, John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. At the end of his gospel, John the author includes a helpful explanation of his own agenda in writing. Not many authors tell you why they wrote their book, but John does. Chapter 20, verse 30 says, 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may, what? Believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Can there be any doubt about the main point of this gospel? It's really a one-note melody. And here at the end of Jesus' public ministry, the message boils down to that same single word, pistuo. Believe is in here eight times. Let me read them back into your hearing. Verse 36, Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light. Verse 37, they still did not believe him. Verse 38, Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Verse 39, therefore they could not believe. Verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Is the point sufficiently made? Why did Jesus come? So that we would believe in him, in who he truly was. Why did John write his gospel? So that we would believe in Jesus. What does Jesus ask from us today? What is the one thing our Lord most wants? He went to the cross to give his life for us. What does he ask in return? What does all of Christian discipleship boil down to? That we would believe in the Son of God. That is, on the one hand, a very small thing, isn't it? A very small thing for him to ask compared to his mighty works in creating us, saving us, dying for us, coming to live with us, transforming us, and lifting us up to glory. How could the tiny mollusk of our belief open to us such glorious golden doors? And yet it does. Only that tiny thing. Tiny, but also hard to give, right? Many people say that they want to give it, but they can't. They say, I wish I, I could believe. I wish I had your faith. So today's passage in John's Gospel asks and answers some important questions about belief. First, what is it? What exactly do we mean by believing in Jesus? Second, is it possible? Is it a gift that's within our power to give? And third, what difference will it make whether we believe or not? So let's tackle the first question. What is belief? What exactly do we mean by believing in Jesus if it's so important? And having repeated this word believe ad nauseum, uh, I want to get away from it now because it's overused and worn thin in our day. Too many Disney movies and Christmas movies have spoiled it. Uh, the Greek word pistuo is the verb form of the noun pistis, which means faith. Faith and belief are exactly the same word in Greek. But in modern usage, faith is an equally worn out and battered word. So if we delve into the fuller meaning of pistuo, we find that it means to think of as true, to be persuaded of, to credit, to place your confidence in, and to commit your trust to. So I want to use that last word, trust. Trust is still a, a fairly fresh and useful word. Jesus came to earth so that we would learn to trust him. That includes trusting him with our minds, to be fully persuaded in our minds that he is who he says he is, the Son of God, 
the true revelation of the Father. It means trusting him with our hearts, that he is good and beautiful, a safe place to invest our dearest hopes and dreams and the right recipient of our dearest love. And trusting him with our bodies, that his laws for the governance of our behavior are the good and right and noble and healthy way for our bodies to live. Pistua includes then a full person trust in Jesus that forsakes all other voices and tolerates no rivals. So in the Disney movie, Aladdin, both in the original and in the live-action remake, there's a scene where Aladdin is with Princess Jasmine in her room high up in the palace. And he stands up on the railing of her balcony, and he lets himself fall backward into empty air, knowing that he's going to be caught by his magic carpet. Jasmine panics, and she rushes over to the balcony to watch him fall, only to find him floating back up to her. And then Aladdin holds out his hand to her, and he asks her one of the most important questions in the movie. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Now, at this point, if Jasmine says, yes, I trust you, but I'd much rather stay safely here on this balcony and not climb aboard that scary carpet, then her trust doesn't mean very much, does it? Mentally trusting him would not be enough, in fact, mentally trusting him would not really have been trusting him at all. If she's really going to trust him, she needs to step out there onto the carpet with him to commit her body at real risk of death to what he says is going to be safe when she doesn't know, apart from his testimony, whether it's really safe. And in the movie, that's what Jasmine does. She trusts Aladdin. She chooses to trust him. And from the song that she sings afterwards, she rather enjoys it. <laughs> now, uh, Jesus asks us the exact same question. He holds out his hand and asks each one of us, do you trust me? Do you trust me? When I say that I am the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, do you trust me? When I say that I give my life to pay your ransom, to buy you out of slavery to sin, do you trust me? When I command you to pray and I tell you that your prayers will be heard and answered in heaven, do you trust me? When I command you to give away your money generously and count on your heavenly Father to provide for you, do you trust me? When I command your body into sexual purity to pursue chastity or a faithful monogamous marriage, do you trust me? And if I command you to stand up and tell people who I am and what I have done for you, do you trust me? Each of these things is a stepping out off the balcony onto the magic carpet. We can say that we believe him, but if we don't take the step it might be hard for him to believe us. In verse 42, we meet people who would not take the step. John reports, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Sarah did a great job expounding that verse with the children. I think John makes it perfectly clear here what he thought about those Jewish leaders. They have become personally convinced in their minds, but they won't take the step. 
They are choosing the glory of man. They are not accepting the new life that Jesus offers to them. So they might believe in him, but they don't trust him. Do we expect that their intellectual assent will be enough to save their souls? It will not. But then the passage invites us to ask, could they have done any differently? Is our belief, our trust in Jesus, a gift that is within our power to give? Because some parts of this passage suggest yes, and other parts seem to say no. So verse 36 says, yes, why would Jesus command people to believe in him if it was impossible for them to obey his command? But then John concludes in verse 39 from Isaiah that therefore they could not believe, which means it was impossible. Again, in verse 42, John says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. So they did what he just said was impossible. Finally, Jesus tells them in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And surely, if there's accountability for the decision, then there must also be choice about it. We do not punish an apple for obeying the force of gravity. So which is it? Possible or impossible to give our belief, our trust to Jesus? The text here seems to come down on both sides of that question. And we might ask John, why, brother, did you wade into these deep waters of Isaiah to muddy your simple message of belief? But of course, he had very good reason to. And since he's gone there, we should too. Uh, John quotes from two different passages in Isaiah here in chapter 12, and they're both very important passages. The first quotation in verse 38 is from our favorite chapter in Isaiah, from uh, Isaiah 53. It's the first verse of Isaiah 53. John is reminding us on the very eve of Jesus going to the cross that right at the beginning of the song of the suffering servant in Isaiah is this intro that he's not going to be believed. And here in John 12, at the very moment the prophecy of Isaiah 53 is fulfilled, so is its first verse in the unbelief of these Pharisees. John's second quotation in verse 40 is from the call of Isaiah in chapter 6, the part that we read together earlier. And this is another favorite part of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he saw angels and the bright glory of the Lord. And Isaiah fell on his face and cried, Woe is me! Then the Lord sanctified his mouth with a burning coal and commissioned him as a prophet, a messenger to the house of Israel, but with no kind of encouraging message. Isaiah's commission was to say, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That is a difficult and confusing passage. But it's also something of a favorite quotation of the New Testament authors. Matthew repeats it word for word in chapter 13, and Luke repeats it again in Acts 28. And both of them quote directly from the Septuagint of this passage, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. But here, when John quotes it in chapter 12, he doesn't quote Isaiah directly. He paraphrases the main ideas of this section. And there's one change he makes that I think is 
very important to our understanding. Uh, John alters the wording so that the hearts of the people are not made heavy or dull, as Isaiah says, using a word that means fat, but instead they are hardened. John chooses a word that means stony. And this naturally makes us think of Pharaoh in Exodus, who hardened his heart against the command of Moses to let the people go. And in that instance, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The text says both. And so in that instance, we understand that a series of no's to God made Pharaoh's heart progressively harder and harder and less and less able to ever say yes. So it seems to me, John substituted this word deliberately to make us think of Pharaoh and to lead us to understand that the unbelief he's talking about in verse 40, the blindness and the hard-heartedness, is not done to people entirely against their will. It's the end product of a process they have entered into deliberately and willingly. A process of hardening their own hearts, whereby, he responds, whereby God responds in the same manner and leaves them unable to see the truth anymore or ever change their minds. This is a truly sorry state. And the lesson should be, be careful how many times you say no to Jesus. If you won't look at what he shows you and turn your face away enough times, then you'll get to the point where you can't see the truth anymore, even when it's right in front of your nose. So then, our question, is belief a gift that's within our power to give? And I think the answer of this passage is, well, I sure hope so. <laughs> so I hold out my hand and ask you again, will you trust me? Will you trust Jesus? Because third, we should assess what difference it will make whether we believe or not. And of course, it will make a great deal of difference. For the ones who cannot trust and who will not climb aboard the magic carpet, verse 40 says they remain unhealed. Verse 46 says they remain in darkness. And verse 48 says they have a judge. Jesus warns them, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. On the other hand, for the ones who trust and climb aboard, there really is a whole new world full of unbelievable sights and indescribable feelings. So let's review the promises in this passage that go with simple belief. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Sons of light. That title hints at a glorious future of a brightness we cannot yet imagine. In verse 40, it says, they will turn and be healed. Verse 44, they will see and know the Father. Verse 46, they will not remain in darkness. And verse 50, they will receive eternal life. All this for the price of a little bit of trust. So we see that Jesus promises much and demands very little. If what he says is true, then it is a wonderful thing to believe. And praise the Lord, it is true. 
We are not asked to believe against the truth or against the witness of our minds and senses. We are only asked to believe against the lies of the devil and of our own hearts. Jesus asks you to trust him. The question for you today is, can you do that? Can you give your trust to him? And I want to notice in closing that Jesus never gave up speaking up for the truth. He received his message from his father, and he passed it on faithfully until his last day. He explains in verse 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. And if we have come to believe in Jesus, then we are given the same job, the same commission Jesus had to speak the message we have received, not on our own authority, but in obedience to the command of God. We notice in John 12 that Jesus faced a whole lot of unbelief and rejection and even violent opposition. And maybe he knew for sure that the people he was crying out to were blind and deaf, completely unable to listen to him or to change their minds. But Jesus kept speaking anyway. He kept on telling them the truth anyway, knowing that the words he spoke would reach them in the end, either as their savior or as their judge. And so must we keep speaking the truth in love to our unbelieving friends and not give up or grow weary following the example of our Lord Jesus. Maybe your friends have told you they don't believe you. Say it again. Maybe they've told you they don't want to hear it from you anymore. Say it again. Don't be a jerk about it. Don't lose the friendship by being unnecessarily obnoxious. But don't stay quiet either. Don't be silenced. Your goal is to be more stubborn in your belief than your friends are in their unbelief. Because you are right, and you may yet open their eyes and save their souls. Tomorrow is a gift that is promised to no one. If you're still standing on the balcony debating whether to step out onto the magic carpet, then decide quickly. At some point, that carpet's going to leave and fly away without you. You are not promised another day. And if you are waiting to talk to your friend or family member, do it quickly. I can't promise you that today is not your last chance. Jesus knew that this conversation in John 12 was his last chance. But when our last chance arrives, we're not likely to know it. As war continues to escalate in the Middle East and Israel finds itself under vicious attack, a lot of Christians are asking, is this it? Are these the events described in Revelation? Are we living in the end times now? And on the one hand, those are questions that many generations of Christians have asked before us, and we've learned to be cautious about declaring the end of the world. But on the other hand, the present situation is in some ways worse than anything our world has yet seen, and very angry fingers rest on the buttons of very destructive nuclear weapons. 
And so I'm not going to stand here and tell you that we have not now entered the last days. It's as foolish to dismiss the idea as it is to insist on it. When the end comes, will it not look much like this? And tomorrow is a gift that none of us are promised. So the right thing to do is not to panic, not to despair, but simply to ask, am I ready? Am I ready to meet Jesus who might come back any day? And to be ready, we do simply what he asks. Trust him. Get onto the carpet with him and make sure we're ready to meet him. Amen.